You're here. It's Family Sunday. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's great. Man, I am so excited for Family Sunday. And, and when we say Family Sunday, we're talking about our family as a church. We're talking about the family of God and, and the family that is represented in this room. And just take a quick look around. I mean that literally. I want to see your heads kind of owl swiveling right now. Yeah, if you look around and you pay attention, we're a pretty diverse-looking group right here. And we are a group of people who have little in common and yet much in common because we share the same Savior. We worship the same guy. And we are celebrating that today. I'm excited to celebrate that with you today. My name's Mr. Zane. <laughs> Got to be for him. Yeah, sure, we'll just go by Zane today. Kick off the formalities, right? I'm not Mr. Zane. I'm Zane today. My name's Zane. I'm the elementary minister at Dallas Bible Church. Uh, I see about 30% in this room on a weekly basis back there behind us, and I love my job. It is a great job, and I love your kids, and I love this church. This church has been a family to me in many, many ways. Today, we're going to talk about neediness, neediness, and it hits particularly close to home with me today because I'm a needy person this morning. I mean, I'm a needy person in general, but I'm especially a needy person this morning. Um, this is, I don't do this a whole lot, the preaching thing. I do it on occasion. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy teaching people what I believe God has taught us in his word. But I'm new to it, and I'm still learning how to do it correctly. Uh, and I've been kind of experimenting with different ways to do it. And, and on Thursday or Friday, the Holy Spirit took me in a different direction from the sermon I had planned to a, to a new sermon. And so creating that on Friday night and Saturday morning, I got this idea in my brain that I'd save some time. And instead of typing out a manuscript, you know, what I want to say, I typed out an outline and I bought this, um, this dictation software on my phone. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and warn you about it by telling you the name of the app. This is, I don't know if this is allowed in a church or not. But uh, it's called Voice Recorder and Audio Editor, and it's by some jack-in-the-box company called Tap Media Limited. Do not download this app. Don't do it. I preached my entire sermon into this app with a five-star review saying it would dictate it into perfect transcript. And this is what I got. Can you, can you bring up a slide? I'm looking for faith in, and I'll be honest, I don't see a lot of save on earth right now. Then it turns and he focuses back over to the Pharisees, Annie Starr. <laughs> Sit, another story. He says, I put a blue, put a blue to you. So I've got like seven pages of this E.E. E. Cummings poem. It's like a, like a rambling stream of conscious Bob Dylan song that I had to just completely throw out last night. And I take that as a sign from the Holy Spirit that God is taking us in another place. So can I be needy with you this morning? <laughs> can I be needy? Neediness is ugly. It's ugly when we see it in ourselves. None of us like to be needy. None of us like to depend on other people. And as Travis said, it kind of smacks against this idea that we have as Americans that independence is a chief value, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do something of worth. Neediness is ugly in ourselves, but even if it's ugly in ourselves, I think it's even uglier in other people. So, 
I know why you come to church. Come to church is the memes. Hit us with the memes, Evelyn. I really like your cologne. It smells like the man I'm going to marry. This is the needy girlfriend meme, right? The overly attached girlfriend. Get us another one, Evelyn. We're getting married in July. You should probably propose before then. I've, I've met that girl. And it's not Tori, just so you know. And we actually are getting married in July. Hit us with another one. This is my favorite one. Our love is like a candle. If you forget about me, I'll burn your house down. And then one final one. This one's in Thai. Uh, and it says, Aku Uda Sablon Tulisan Koak Ini Uda Punya Pakar, Desembu Baju Kamu Biarga Ada Yang Dekaten Kamulagi. Which I think is something that, uh, that Jabba the Hutt says at one point. Uh, I don't know what that says in Thai, but I bring it up there just to make this point. This is a ubiquitous idea that neediness is ugly. I hope that's appropriate if you know Thai. I hope it's... <laughs> really don't know. Neediness is ugly when we see it in other people. It doesn't smack to us as attractive as Americans. And yet the Bible says that neediness is something we need. We need neediness. The Bible says that neediness is a chief core value for the Christian. So why is it so unattractive to us? Well, in order to answer that question, I'm going to go today to a passage that, I mean, it's a basic children's pastor move to do this. We're going to go to the passage where Jesus receives the children. So be turning your Bibles to Luke 18, uh, 15 through 17. And yes, it's a basic move, and it's probably totally predictable. And um, I know what you're expecting, a shameless plug to serve in the nursery, right? Uh, you might get that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how the Spirit leads. Uh, as you're turning there, there's some things we need to address in this passage. In fact, let's... I feel the need to pray before we address them because it's going to take a work of the Spirit to do it correctly. So pray with me. Father God, we are needy before you. We are needy in understanding your word. We can't get it on our own. We're needy in teaching your word. We're needy in that we don't have righteousness. And we need you right now, Holy Spirit, to fall upon this room, surround us, envelop us as a family, as people who are in love with you. Open our eyes to the truth of the scripture. In Christ's name, amen. There's a couple reasons this passage is difficult. Uh, The first reason is, it's kind of cartoony. If you've ever darkened the hallway of a Sunday school class in the early 90s, you've seen a picture not unlike this. We'll come back to the scripture. You guys have seen something like that? Yeah. So there's always this scene of Jesus kind of sitting on some, like, nondescript green hill in the middle of nowhere with these, like, floating blue clouds in the background and, and children who are like modernly dressed somehow, wearing blue jeans, uh, who have gathered around Jesus and are sitting on his lap and, and, you know, are are loving him and and all this. And there's always like no parents around, which I think is kind of creepy. Like how'd they get out there? I have no idea. Uh, But it's kind of cartoony, you know. This has created a scene in our brains of this passage that paints Jesus like a, like a mall Santa Claus or a, uh, a birthday clown, right? That's, 
That's what we've come to see from this passage, and I think a lot of that is because of these, these pictures that we've seen. And, and a picture that's been painted to us as a Jesus who's portraying something that he's not portraying. When in reality, when we come to this passage as the author, Luke, intended us to, and as when we come to this passage as a disciple might have, standing around, we see a very different story. We see a different Jesus. We see a Jesus who is flipping the kingdom of man up on its head. A Jesus who's taking our priorities and is cutting them to their knees. Let's read it together. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Infants, infants, that's important. Luke uses the word infants. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. What's that mean? If the first difficulty to approaching this passage is that cartoonish nature we've created in our brain of it, I think the second difficulty is a a mistreatment of this passage that we've received, which is if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have childish faith. The Bible says you have to have childlike faith, but nowhere does it say childish faith. And that's important to me because I'm a doubter. Ever since I was a little kid, I was a doubter. I don't, I don't have that faith that I'm able to let go and say, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't have that. There are things in the Bible that have bothered me. There are things in the gospel that have bothered me. And sometimes my faith has looked more like a wrestling match than it has a child who says, I believe whatever you say. And, and that's problematic when we see this passage. And I don't think that's what the passage is getting to. So what is the passage getting to? Jesus says, you have to receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. Is he saying you have to be humble like a child? How many of y'all have met a humble child? Is he saying you have to trust like a child? Maybe, but I don't think babies are super trusting. That's not kind of their thing. Is he saying you just have to be like a little person to get into heaven? I, I don't think so. I think what Jesus is telling us is about neediness. He's making a bold statement about the kingdom and about need. We need neediness. Two things we need to understand before we get to the true heart of this passage. We've got to do some digging. We've got to do some work before we get there. Two things. First thing we need to understand is Luke's idea of the kingdom. We hear that word, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a child. What's that mean? What is the kingdom of heaven? I've developed this picture in my brain, not unlike cartoon Jesus, of people floating around on clouds, wearing halos, and talking to cartoon dogs. Is that the kingdom of heaven? I don't think so. The kingdom of heaven, as Luke paints us a picture, is something that is radically and diametrically opposed to what we see on earth now. So Luke and Jesus are doing this thing all through the gospel where they're taking the picture of the kingdom now, how things are now, broken, divided, ugly, a kingdom where people die, a kingdom where people are prejudiced, a kingdom where people get sick, a kingdom where poor people are taken advantage of, a kingdom where rich people are elevated, and he's talking about a process that God is taking where he's going to take a new kingdom to the earth where all that is flipped upside down. So things may be bad now, but they're not always going to be bad. Things may be broken now, 
but they're not going to be in the future. So Jesus is bringing this kingdom, a world where he says things are, are going to change. Things are going to be perfect. We just sang about it. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. If you are a child of God, you believe that to be literally true. It's not just a poem. That's a truth that someday every mouth on this earth, on the terra firma on which our feet are planted, will praise God and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the kingdom. In the same way, bones that have been underground for thousands of years will come to life and believers will be given new life in Christ. That's the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So to understand this passage, you have to understand the idea of kingdom. First, understand the idea of kingdom if you want to know what it means to receive Jesus as a child. Second thing you need to understand, just like any passage, is the context. Context, context, context. Jackson's smiling. He goes to DTS. He knows the thing. Context! You've got to know the context of the passage. And the context of the passage in Luke 18 is unique and tells us a lot about what Jesus means when he's saying you have to inherit the kingdom as a child. So what is the context? Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is a popular dude. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys remember that there was an interview? My dad references it frequently of John Lennon in the 60s. This is why my dad hates the Beatles, where he says, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't know, are you guys familiar with that? Some of you are nodding your heads. The Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ. That's an Australian John Lennon. That's, that's a man who does not belong up here with a pulpit. Um, at this point in Jesus' ministry, dude's bigger than the Beatles. You've seen those footages, right, of, of girls like throwing themselves up to the Beatles, of people thronging them, trying to get autographs. That's Jesus in Luke 18. Here's a guy who can touch a man who is blind, touch his eyes, and this man can see again. Here's a guy who can go over to a man who's never walked a day in his life, speak truth over him, and this man gets up and dances? This is a man that surrounds himself with poor people and says, you guys are blessed and the kingdom of God is coming. And this has attracted a lot of attention. So when you think Luke 18, don't think of a context of some nondescript green hill in the middle of nowhere with 12 children. Think of throngs pressing up against Jesus in a back alleyway of Capernaum. Think about people trying to get close. Think about whispers. Hey, have you heard of this Jesus guy? Yeah, he, I heard he healed a blind guy. Is that true? Is he maybe the one who's bringing the, bringing the kingdom? He is popular. People pressing on him against all sides. And in the middle of that, in the middle of all that popularity, in the middle of all that stardom, in the middle of all that likeness of human beings, there are 12 men, and several women that Jesus has chosen to surround himself with. And y'all, they are not the ones I would have chosen. They are fishermen who likely can't read. They are tax collectors who people hate. They are former people who are possessed by demons, prostitutes, and people that the world looked down on. Those are the people that Jesus surrounds himself with. So think with me. Try to enter the mind of a disciple. What's going on in your brain as Jesus is teaching? Do you think maybe your own status is being elevated a little bit in your brain? 
You're standing next to John Lennon. There's people pressing in at each side, and and you're his guy. What's that going to do up here to you? We have to keep that in mind before we go into the passage. This passage does not exist in isolation. Luke intentionally includes it in a long passage of teachings about the kingdom. And they start with a question from the Pharisees. And in chapter 17, verse 20, you don't have to turn there, but the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you've been talking a lot about the kingdom. And you know what? We're, we're almost sold. When's it coming? I mean, you've been talking about it for years. When's the kingdom coming? We've been waiting. And so Jesus, to answer their question, he, he begins just kind of telling them about the kingdom. He says, well, it's not exactly what you're going to think it's going to be. In fact, it's probably not going to be good for some of you, some of you who, who don't have faith if you're looking for the when, you should maybe be asking more the where, because I can't tell you when. The where is there's going to be, like, lots of dead bodies and stuff. And so he's, he's teaching about the kingdom, and I don't think people are really tracking with him. Because he starts to tell stories. You see this a lot with Jesus when he's, he's trying to speak a truth that's not easily articulated. He'll tell a story. And so he tells a story, and he says, Well, Pharisees, disciples, if you really want to know what the kingdom's like— Maybe consider a woman who's a widow, and she's asking an unfair master to give her what she needs. And she keeps asking and asking and asking, and she has faith in that master. That's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm looking for faith, not works. And then he scratches his head again, and he thinks, no, I've got a better one. He says, I'm going to tell you a story. There is a Pharisee, and there is a tax collector in this story. And the audience just all kind of goes, ooh. Pharisee and a tax collector. This is juicy. What's this going to be like? Hmm. And Jesus says, a Pharisee and a tax collector. They walk into the temple. And the Pharisee gets down on his knees, and, and, and he does his, his quick sacrifice to the Lord, gives his offering, stands up, and he begins to pray. And he says, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. You all understand that, right? Because tax collectors are <laughs> they're bad people. Uh, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like an adulterer or a sinner. Thank you that you've made me me and that I have righteousness to give you. And all the crowd just kind of nods their head and they say, yeah, that makes sense. Those Pharisees, we all know how they are. And then Jesus says, but hmm, let me tell you about the tax collector, Pharisees. The tax collector comes and he gets down on his knees and he begins to beat his chest. And he prays and he says, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Now, Pharisees, I'm going to tell you something, and this is going to blow your mind. It's the tax collector who's justified, not the Pharisees. And that crowd, that crowd of people pressing in, they just go wild. Oh, snap! Did y'all hear that? Jesus just said that a tax collector is better than a Pharisee? Can you... I just honestly can't believe that. And I imagine the Pharisees are, you know, they're doing their thing. They're upset. Imagine what Matthew's thinking at this moment. One of Jesus' disciples, an actual tax collector. Oh, snap. Jesus just dunked all over the Pharisees. And he said that I'm righteous. I'm the one who's justified. Yeah, let's go. When the kingdom comes, they're going to be cleaning out my chamber pot. I cannot wait. That's the context of the story, except for one key element. And it's an element that's present in this room. There are children there. 
We don't know exactly when, uh, when the women start bringing Jesus the babies, the infants, but we know that it happens at a time that's not convenient. We know that it happens at a time when the disciples think, this isn't actually working with our schedule right now. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but I think Luke has placed it against this story for a reason. <laughs> I think he's placed it against the story so we can imagine what it might have been like. So come with me, if you will, on a journey of what it might have been like. Jesus begins to teach the parable to the, to the Pharisees, and he says, Well, Pharisees, uh, let me tell you a story. It's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee goes up to the temple, and he, Oh, hey, sure. Oh, where was I? Yeah, yeah. So the Pharisee goes up to the temple, and he's playing Yeah, he just peed. You might want to <laughs> take him back. The Pharisee starts to pray, and he says, Thank you that I'm not like the sinner. And no, seriously, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. No, I'd love to. Please, please, I'd love to. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you know, she looks like her mother. She really looks like you. You get that? She, she really does. Now, where was— Oh, yeah, the tax collector. The tax collector is the one who's justified. Do you see how this is problematic? Are you, are you following me here? Because infants are, in fact, problematic, right? To a guy who has important things to say. I don't know if it was that parable, but it was something Jesus was saying that was important. Or there was some paralyzed man in the back that needed healed. Or there was some, look forward in your Bible, rich young ruler in the back of the crowd, raising his hand saying, I've been waiting for like five hours to ask you a question. Maybe me now? But Jesus doesn't take another question. He takes another baby. And the disciples are thinking, you know, he's a nice guy. <laughs> What's, okay, fine, what's one baby? And he takes another baby. All right, we really have things to do. There's that rich young ruler in the back, and uh, I was really kind of liking what he was saying about the Pharisees. And he takes another baby. And the disciples think, enough's enough. Jesus is too nice to deal with this. We're going to go over and we're going to talk to those moms. So I picture Matthew says, hey, you know, cute baby, by the way, but uh, now isn't really the time. If you could, maybe you could bring him back later this evening after dinner when everyone's kind of cleared out. We would love to see him then. Or even better, give me his name. Give me his name and we'll pray over him at staff meeting. That would, that would be great. Sure. The disciples step in and they insert themselves over Jesus' priorities. And this is where Jesus makes his point. Verse 16. Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such, the, such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. So how does this idea of entering the kingdom like a child address at all what the disciples are doing? They kind of seem like disparate ideas, right? One person is rebuking people because of priority, and another is saying you have to enter the kingdom of God like a child. How do we put those two ideas together. Here's what I think is happening. The disciples are thinking, we've earned it. The disciples are hearing that parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're saying, oh yeah, Jesus sees something in us. There's a reason he called us and not them. You know, we've been with him for so long, I, I think that we finally earned our way. We're actually better than the rest. And when you think like that, church, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own life. When you think like that, when you come to God with a sense of entitlement, it allows you to write off other people. 
And so that's what gives the disciples the, the gall to come to Jesus and come to the mothers and say, you don't get it. We do. They have no neediness. They have forgotten where they came from. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were people that the world had written off and they had forgotten where they came from. They had forgotten their neediness. So Jesus picks up a child and he looks at Matthew and he says, Oh, Matthew, you thought I was talking about the, the Pharisees? I'm talking about you, brother. Those Pharisees ain't going to get it. I'm talking about you. Unless you enter the kingdom of God like a child, like someone who knows that he's totally dependent on someone else, you, you can't enter into it. When I bring that new world, you can't come. I'll demonstrate this to you guys. There's a lot of things we know to be true about babies. Again, like babies cry, babies poop, babies stink, babies are dependable upon uh, anything around them. But the thing that we know most about babies is they are utterly and fully dependent and needy. And I think we see this in our media. Some of our most favorite stories, some of those popular stories in American media, fit our idea of individualism and picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. And a lot of times that has to do with orphans, with people who were abandoned. Uh, I'll give you some examples. So Luke Skywalker, an orphan, well, not really an orphan. His dad was a lot. An orphan, practically. Uh, Abandoned, right? Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Abandoned, an orphan. Huck Finn, an orphan. Jane Eyre, an orphan. Spider-Man, an orphan. Superman, an orphan. Batman, an orphan. All the men are orphans. Frodo was an orphan. One of my favorite orphans is Alexander Hamilton from the play, from the musical Hamilton. I don't know if you all are into that. So relevant, I know. (laughs) We love orphans. We love those stories because they're about people who who pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They're about people who are set against all odds. But you know what orphan movie I have yet to see made? A movie about a baby who pulls himself up by his bootstraps. Have you ever seen a movie where there's a baby placed in the woods who no one discovers, and he grows up to be a productive member of society? No. Did you say Tarzan? Great, I'm glad you did, because Tarzan had monkeys. Right? Luke had Uncle Owen. Spider-Man had Aunt May. They all had someone. Great point. They all had someone. Even Romulus and Remus had that weird, well-endowed wolf that took care of them. Right? There's always someone to take care of these infants. It's too fiction for fiction to see an autonomous infant. To see an independent infant. An infant who comes and says, I can do this myself. It's too fiction for even the wildest fantasy. It doesn't happen. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to come to me like a child. Like an infant. Like someone who has no righteousness. Like someone who is totally dependent upon me. Or you won't get in. You won't make it. So how could the disciples tell that, or how could Jesus tell that the disciples didn't get this? Again, they had elevated their own preferences over other people. They have said, we're better than them. Is there any person like that in your life? Is there any 
source of righteousness that you're holding on to? Any thing that you're saying, this is mine, I earned it. That car, mine, I earned it. That house, mine, I earned it. That law degree, mine, I earned it. This is our American value. And truthfully, some of you have worked really, really hard in this room, and you have earned it, but only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Would you have earned it if you were born in Mogadishu in 1994? Or Serbia? Would you have earned it then? Or is it by the grace of God that he's given you good things? So what's this look like with the gospel? What's this look like with the kingdom? Again, we've got to somehow connect this idea of the kingdom, of things that are bad going to things that are good. Neediness is all about the cross. Jesus inserts this idea of receiving the kingdom of God like a child in the middle of a society, in the middle of a culture that thinks they can do something to earn God's favor. Somehow in the course of events, over a thousand years, the Pharisees had developed this doctrine and philosophy that when we come to God and we offer our gift, when we make our sacrifice, somehow we're okay. The disciples have somehow developed this philosophy that says, we've served God so hard, we're okay. We're fine. And a few chapters down the road, Dr. Luke is going to tell us about how not fine we are. That's how utterly dependent we are upon the righteousness of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, what he's saying is, you are not good enough. You cannot do enough. You're a baby. You are so dependent on me. I have to die for you. That's what salvation costs. So when Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're like a child, he means that. You can't come with him unless you let go of your reasons why you think God should accept you into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you say, I need Jesus. I need him, I need him, I need him. Every hour I need him. Unless you say that, Unless you come to God with that posture, this isn't esoteric, this is literal. You will not enter the kingdom. How's that play out? So God says he's looking for this kind of person to enter the kingdom. He's looking for a kingdom full of people who are needy. A kingdom full of people who need God. What does that look like? A kingdom, a church that is needy. Well, I have three things for you. And I want to camp out real hard on the last one, but three things for you. What's a needy Christian look like? A needy person, a needy Christian serves joyfully. A needy Christian serves joyfully. When you are needy of God, when you know that he takes care of all your needs, when you know that all your sustenance, all your pleasure, all the good things you have come from God, that frees you to get rid of the stupid idea that you have to serve. That you have to share the gospel. That you have to serve in the nursery on Sunday morning, on the fifth Sunday. That you have to greet and hand out bulletins. It frees you from that notion because you guys don't have to. I don't have to be here right now. I can take off this mic, walk out that door, never come back. I'm not going to. But I could because I don't have to. God accepts me because God accepts Jesus. God accepts me because God accepts the sacrifice of his son. When you are a needy person, when you come to God like a child, like an infant, completely dependent upon him, 
you realize that you can serve joyfully. You can serve joyfully. Second thing a needy person looks like, what does a needy person look like? A needy person loves selflessly. A needy person loves selflessly. So this is a generous church. It really is. Many of us in this room have benefited of the generosity of this church several times. And I think the reason this church is so generous is because we know that we can love selflessly. Because when we're needy, when we know that all that we come from has come from God, all our sustenance, all our love, all our enjoyment comes from the Heavenly Father, and we are like babies before Him that frees us up to do whatever we want with our checkbooks. No threat of reprisal. You can love selflessly. When you are driving home from church today and you pass that guy with the sign on the side of the street that says, times are tough, you can roll down your window and say, get in the car, let's go. Let's go to Hardee's. Hardee's is an East Coast thing. Carl's Jr. Let's go to Carl's Jr. Let's get a burger. You can do that because your dependence and worth is not found upon your safety and upon your financial security. You can love selflessly when you come to God like an infant. That's what a kingdom person looks like. A kingdom full of people that love selflessly. So first, a needy person serves joyfully. Second, a needy person loves selflessly. Third, a needy person lives freely. And this is the big one, folks. This is the big one. We have been taught in America to devaluate neediness because it smacks up against our independence. Somehow in this country, we have formed the idea that independence is the key to freedom. Autonomy is the key to freedom. It's not. It's not. The Bible says that you're a slave to something no matter what. Either you're a slave to your checkbook or you're a slave to your family, or you're a slave to baseball practices, or you're a slave to Sunday school, or you're a slave to preaching on Sunday morning. You're a slave to something if you're not a slave to God. But when you are dependent on God, when you are needy, when you come to God as an infant, you are totally free. I'll prove it to you. You ready? Can you think of a time in your life when you felt freer than when you were a child? For those of us in this room with happy childhoods or, or childhoods where we were taken care of, and I know that's not all of us, can you think of a time in your life when you were freer than when you were a child? When you could go outside and play wiffle ball all day and come back and know you had a hot meal? At the same time, can you think of a time when you were more dependent than when you were a child? At every moment, you were dependent on your parents or caretakers. There was nothing you could do to provide for yourself, and yet you were free. You were free. You were free to do what you wanted to because you were dependent. You were needy. This is what the Bible teaches us about serving God. The Christian that comes to God as his total source of dependence is totally free. The Christian that comes to God like a baby is totally free. Let me give you some examples. And I know this goes against all conventional wisdom in the West. I know this goes against all conventional wisdom in our land of the free and home of the brave. But here's what a needy person looks like in the kingdom. A needy man, a man who can rely on God for everything, a man who comes to God like a baby, a man who knows that all his worth and value comes from God and not from men around him, a man who knows he's covered in the cross, who doesn't have to work for his own righteousness. This man is free to sell his home and move to an apartment complex full of roaches to share the gospel. He is. 
because he knows at the end of the day, no matter what his discomfort is, the Lord will take care of him. If God has called him to do that, that's what he can do. He's completely free. A woman. A woman who knows Jesus, who comes to God like a child, completely dependent, completely safe in him, knowing that her worth and her value doesn't come from the people around her or her own righteousness. This woman can come to God as a baby, knowing that she is needy. This woman can share the gospel with her boss. No threats of reprisal. What if he fires me? It does not matter because God will take care of me. I am needy before him. I am an infant. I am completely dependent. If he fires me, so be it. God has something better for me. I can share the gospel freely at my workplace. Teenager. Man, I was thinking through this last night and I was tearing up. I can't think of a time in my life that more exemplified diversity than when I was a teenager. I went to school with people that I have not seen since. Youth that are in this room, and this is a side note, you are the tip of the spear. You are not some ancillary thing in our church. You are the tip of the spear. You are where the gospel goes out. And a girl, a teenage girl, who's free in Christ, who knows that all her value and all her worth comes from Jesus. This girl... This girl can sit down at lunch with a person who smells weird and talks funny and isn't liked and isn't lovable and doesn't improve on her image. This girl's free. This girl's brave because she knows that all her worth comes from her father. She knows that she's justified in Christ. One of the bravest people I knew was a 16-year-old girl who knew she was free. Free child. Free child can lie in bed safely at night, knowing that there's no monster in the closet or ghost in the hallway or bump or creak in the middle of the night that's too big for a carpenter from Nazareth to handle. Because when you're needy, you're free. When you know that you're totally dependent on God, you're free. You're free to serve joyfully, you're free to love selflessly, you're free to live freely. A needy person is free. What's that look like in America for the home of the free and the land of the brave? I don't know if we get this all the time. A free American looks like someone who trusts in God. A free American looks like someone whose self-sufficiency is not found in their own righteousness or in their own plans. A free American can stand in Memphis, Tennessee next to a guy who holds a sign that says, I'm a man, and say, yeah, you are a man even if he never sells another bushel of corn. Because this guy knows he's taken care of. If we want to be a country of free people, we need to enter the kingdom like little babies, like children, completely dependent on God. You know what? That's a kingdom I want to enter. That's a group of people I want to surround myself with. That's a church I want to be involved in. Frankly, that's why I'm at DBC. So we're joyful, we're selfless, and we're free. Is that a vision you guys can get on board with? All right, so what are my applications for this? A lot of good truth. What do we do with it? Well, I said I wasn't going to do a shameless plug. I am going to do a shameless plug. 
uh, it's our commitment at DBC that every child has a chance to succeed. We want every child in the back or in the front, all over this class or over, all over this campus to be able to succeed. And sometimes that takes differentiation, providing each child what each child needs to su- succeed in knowing the gospel and sharing the gospel with their friends. And I want to be humble and honest with you real quick. I haven't done that super well here. So this fall, we're launching a program. And I've been talking to some mothers already on our campus. Uh, We're going to need people to do it. We're going to need people that can live freely and show up on Sunday mornings and sit with children who maybe need a little extra attention so that we can differentiate and make sure every child succeeds. So this is a long-term application. Don't just write this off. Please don't write this off. If you're a kind person, you're who we're looking for. For real. We're looking for kind. You say, ah, I don't know how to deal with special education. I don't know how to teach. I don't, I've never been in a classroom. Are you kind? You're free to change someone's life. Be praying about this. We need five or six people to do this. I know a shameless plug, but this is important to the health of our body. We want to make sure children can succeed, right? We do. But the second application I have is far more concrete, and you're not going to have a choice with this one because we're going to do it together. In a few minutes, we are going to be enjoying communion together as a body. Um, A lot of you, this will be your first time to do communion. Some of you kids who haven't been in big church before when we've passed the, the cracker and the grape juice, you, you're not familiar with that. So let me just unpack that real quick to you. When we celebrate communion, we're celebrating something that Jesus told us to do uh, before he went to the cross. And that's to, to take bread and to break it, celebrate his broken body, and to take wine or grape juice and drink it, and to celebrate his blood. And in doing that, we're acting out the grace that God has shown us. We're acting that out for other people to see. But it's not just about acting out grace. There's something mystical in communion that the Bible talks about that knits us together. That demonstrates that we are one. So when you take communion, it's family Sunday, guys. Perfect time. You're showing that you're one with the person next to you. You may not even know them. You may have just met them when you turned to them and said, Hey, I'm Zane, during the greeting time. But you're one with them. So here's what you need to do. The Bible is clear on this. If you have beef with anyone in this room or anyone in the church, Big C, outside of this room, don't take communion today. Settle it, because it's important. In fact, I would encourage you, if it's someone in this room, when we're singing, get up and walk over to them. Give them a hug. Because we're no longer dependent on what we think. We're dependent upon God. We are needy of God. You can do that. You're free to do that. So we're going to celebrate that together. Uh, Parents, I'm going to let you make the choice whether or not your kids are ready to take communion. That's something only you can understand. If you're an unbeliever here today, it's not that we want to exclude you, but we do believe that this is something that's reserved for for believers in in the Scripture. So you can just let the elements pass. Uh, We're going to pray, and then I invite you to humble your hearts as a needy child before God as we come to the Lord's table. Our Heavenly